What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Guest this morning spent a week in a right-wing constitutional defense camp. Laura Jeter is an investigative and features journalist based in New York City. She often writes about housing justice, military interventionism, and the American far right. Her bylines include Rolling Stone, Salon, Truthout, and more. The New Republic just published her essay, My Constitutional Defense Training Camp, an on-the-ground report about the far right movement trying to rewrite the Constitution and armed supporters along the way. Good morning, Laura. Good morning. Lovely to be here. Really happy to have you. Enjoyed, well, enjoyed, got scared a little <laughs> bit reading your essay. Um, but first, what is a constitutional defense camp and why did you want to spend a week there? Uh, well, the way that the constitutional defense course is described on the Patriot Academy website is that it will provide you the physical ammunition to, uh, to uh, protect your family and the intellectual ammunition you need to defend the Constitution. And reading this in the summer of 2022, shortly after um, the raid on Mar-a-Lago, um, when Civil War talk was, was pretty running pretty hot on the right wing side. I thought that that seemed like an interesting combination. And I was wondering <laughs> um, whether those two streams would cross in person. Um, I get a lot of right wing events. I thought this one would be a very interesting one. And it was. Yeah, it's it sounded like it. Uh, tell us more about the Patriot Academy and its founder, Rick Green. Uh, Patriot Academy is something that's been around since about 2001 in various forms. It started as a sort of summer camp for uh, politics nerds. I say this is a former uh, current politics nerd myself, but conservative politics nerds in um, Texas could go and spend a week in the Texas State Capitol building learning about various aspects of what Rick Green thinks the Constitution is. And over time, the uh, Academy has branched out. It now has a lot of online courses where people are um, encouraged to get a group together and do these video courses on the Constitution. Um, and they do things like this constitutional defense course, which is basically where you get to do some pretty intense handgun training and, of course, constitutional instruction. Everything centers around the constitutional instruction, which the message of this is this idea that America was founded by deeply Christian men, um, directly based on biblical principles, and that this country was always intended to be a Christian nation, which, you know, is a um, it's an interesting interpretation. There's some, some issues with that, obviously. Yeah, I picked up on uh, one sentence in your last answer, and that is what Rick Green thinks the constitution is so in in addition to the rewriting of what actually happened in terms of the founding of this country what does he think it is and how does he see the rewriting of the constitution as a tool to build the kind of america he and his allies want to live in Yes. Um, Rick Green gets a lot of his ideas about the Constitution from a man named David Barton, who's someone that I had never heard of, but apparently everybody on the evangelical right is, is extremely familiar with, written over a dozen books, all of which basically defend this idea that people like Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, who are, are documented as either deist or, or not particularly religious, were in fact deeply religious, and that 
America was very explicitly founded as a Christian nation that ought to have Christian principles. Um, David Barton is all for things like prayer in school, Ten Commandments in hallways. He also happens to think that um, gay marriage should be outlawed. Obviously, gender-affirming care is, is beyond the pale. And the idea behind this, um, they've gotten in line with this idea of what they call a convention of states, which is a bit of a misnomer. It would be a basically a convention that can be called according to the constitution to uh, propose multiple amendments at once. They don't see this as a rewrite. They see this as a restoration to this imagined Christian nation that America used to be. So you can sort of imagine the kind of, um, amendments that you might see there. Um, a lot of it is libertarian talking points, things like balancing the budget. You can't have any but like debt, uh, closing the commerce clause, which would essentially gut every federal program we have. So they want some pretty extreme stuff. So you you mentioned um, uh, in the, uh, uh, something in the Constitution in terms of how you can amend it. I mean, most people think that it's, you know, approved by Congress and ratified by the states. But talk about um, Article V, the second part of it that talks about two, if two thirds of states petition Congress, what could happen in terms of this convention of the states? Yes, and this is something that I was certainly unaware of and that I think Me a too. lot of people, yeah, um, it's a pretty obscure section. So everyone's familiar with the the regular amendment process, the one you learned in Schoolhouse Rock, where you, you have to pass it through the Senate, the people vote on it, all that stuff. We've done it 27 times, very well understood. There's also a little part in there where if two-thirds of the states petition Congress, Congress has to declare a constitutional convention, at which point states will send delegates, and those delegates can vote on a large slate of amendments. They can really do some pretty dramatic changes all at once. And this is a pretty vague uh, portion of the Constitution. It's not really spelled out what this would look like. Uh, the Convention of States would like to see it where each state State legislatures send a slate of delegates and then each state gets one vote. So immediately we know that states are pretty heavily Republican gerrymandered. So you'd have a lot of um, extremely Republican representatives. Uh, obviously, this would skew very much towards rural and not urban with one vote per state. And I think they you know they think that if they could call this convention, they could they could really. Um, well, what they see is restoring the Constitution, what I would characterize as a, a, a rewrite. Laura Jeter, because I, I think this part is really important, right? This sounds super far-fetched and, and out there, I think, to a lot of us. But talk about how things, uh, how entities like the Patriot Academy and other similar organizations and institutions are using things like this training camp to organize, recruit, base build to get the numbers they need to actually possibly call for a convention of the states. Yes, it does. It sounds like a libertarian pipe dream on its face. And all the efforts to do this previously, and there have been some, have failed, but this one is a pretty concerted effort. I believe at last count they had 18 of the 34 states. They had passed the resolution that would be required. Um, a great deal more of them have passed it through one chamber of the legislature, and almost every state is at least considering a petition. So this is an active push. And it's also a pretty well-funded push. So there's, there's um, things like Patriot Academy, which is not directly affiliated with Convention of States. They're just extremely um, – they're fellow travelers. They go to their conventions. They promote it heavily. So there's grassroots organizations or astroturfed organizations like Patriot Academy who are pushing this. There's also a lot of dark money behind it. Um, one of the um, senior members of the Convention of States Action group is um, a man who's 
been affiliated with the Koch brothers for years. The Mercer family has given money. Um, the Conservative Partnership Institute, which is an incredibly anodyne sounding name, but is probably the biggest dark money in MAGA country today, is heavily involved in this. So they are extremely well funded. And the push is growing, I, mostly, I think, under the table for people who stick with more mainstream news sources. And should this actually happen, I mean, there could be some pretty scary outcomes. There was a mock convention of the states, um, or mock convention of states, excuse me. Talk about how that played out and what types of amendments emerged. Um, yes, so this was, I'm like on the date, I believe it was in 2016, but essentially the people who would like this to happen had a mock convention of states in Colonial Williamsburg, and it had a bunch of the Tea Party trappings you'd expect, or some people who dressed up as various historical characters, and then they got down to the very serious business of actually debating what they'd like to pass. And the things that they passed are, are pretty extreme. They did a balanced budget amendment where basically you would not be allowed, the federal government would not be allowed to take on debt, which would hamstring basically every aspect of the federal government. It closed the Commerce Clause loophole, which is the way that the government um, makes a lot of the laws that govern basically really a lot of things depend on the Commerce Clause. A lot of the federal government or HR take for granted today. And um, they passed something that um, former Senator Russ Feingold characterizes as the John C. Calhoun Amendment, which would essentially allow for nullification. If uh, I believe two thirds of the states decided they didn't like a law, they could vote and overturn it, which is uh, given what nullification has been, uh, what people have attempted to nullify in the past is a really pretty horrifying proposition. Talk about these groups and their ties, perhaps, to Donald Trump. I mean, if we're talking about, I mean, we are looking at, you know, the next presidential election. Trump says he's winning. I think we'd be silly to <laughs> pretend that he doesn't have a chance at winning. He did it once. He could do it again. Um, what what could that possibly mean? Yes. Um, I mean, these are, this is MAGA country. Um the Conservative Partnership Institute that I mentioned earlier has deep ties to the January 6th coup and, and the things that came before it where Trump was trying very hard to hold on to power. Um, several of the delegates that were at this mock convention were involved in the efforts to uh, maintain power, Trump in power. Uh, John Eastman it infamously wrote, I believe that memo, like really, really worked very hard to keep Trump in power, was a delegate to the Convention of States. So this is a heavily Trump affiliated movement. And I go beyond that. It is a it's a MAGA affiliated movement. I think we saw in the recent struggle over the Speaker of the House vote that Trump doesn't quite have the cachet he used to. Lauren Boebert rocked him, uh, basically renounced him on the stay on um at the podium. And yeah. and yet the movement persists. And in this post-MAGA world, I think that they are there's a real push to look for other ways to gain power. And I think this is one of those ways. You've mentioned libertarians a couple of times. Similarities and differences between these folks and say some traditional libertarians, if any. Yes. Um, so it's this is to me very interesting. Mark Meckler, who's the co-founder and head head basically head person at this point of the Convention of States push, started out as, as a libertarian. He was big in the Tea Party movement, very much not a religious kind of guy, but that has changed dramatically over the years. Convention of States still very much presents itself as a libertarian effort. Their talking points are mostly libertarian. It's all, the focus is very much on small government, but it's hard to escape the fact that almost everybody involved in this push towards the convention is 
deeply religious, including Mark Meckler. Uh, there are ties to Dominionist Christianity. David Barton is has echoed something called the Seven Mountains Mandate, which is a Dominionist-associated idea that basically Christianity needs to take control of the seven mountains of civilization, which ranges from media to education to government. So even though if you ask these people, and I did, I asked Rick Green, and he was emphatic that none of these amendments would have anything to do with enforcing Christianity per se, the people behind this movement are are extremely Christian. And once the Convention of States, if, if a convention were to be called, all bets are off, any kind of um, restraint that they think they've put into the petition, would they could ignore this. And it could, basically, you have to look at what these people believe, and you can kind of you have to wonder whether the evangelical character would in fact come out i want to go back uh to the the week that you spent inside of the patriot academy um friend i read it was four days of handgun training and just one day of of constitutional um lectures Rick Green says that the shifts that he's looking for can and should be brought about peacefully. How does he jive that with teaching people for four days how to become armed marksmen? Yes, this to me was very interesting because I, frankly, when I went in, I expected a lot more insurrectionary rhetoric, and there really wasn't very much of that. The focus of the actual handgun portion really was on that that traditional bad guy with a gun, a good guy with a gun's got to stop them. So we were we were basically on the surface training to be good guys with guns. And Rick Green is a pretty vocal proponent of peaceful means to gain power. This uh, the idea of a convention of amendments is. Is there's no bloodshed involved in this, and that's Rick Green's preferred method. But like many conservatives, Rick Green sees the Second Amendment as the linchpin of the Constitution. Basically, if all else fails, we can defend we can defend ourselves against tyranny using the Second Amendment and our Second Amendment rights. So there's that subtext. But really, after I left, what I, I what I think is going on here is that the handgun portion is kind of a loss leader. People can go into these courses. Just being interested in handguns and having a vague idea that they're conservative. And then they walk out with this one day of constitution training and a pretty aggressive pitch to, and I apologize for the connection issues. Um, like a lot of conservatives, Rick Green sees the Second Amendment as the linchpin of the entire constitution. He'd prefer peaceful means and basically at this point rejects ideas of civil war. He thinks it's not that kind of time yet, but I think that it's conceivable for Rick Green and people like him that that time might come. Right. All the, you know, they, they like to talk about that sort of thing. And they say, I think if all else fails, we'd see that. But in this particular course, I really think that the handgun portion was a bit of a loss leader and a way to get people to come to the course at all. A lot of people that attend courses like this, um, some of them are very familiar with Patriot Academy's idea about how the world ought to work, but others just, think that it would be good to learn more about guns and are vaguely conservative. So you go to this course, you get the day of constitutional training. They encourage you to sign up for their other courses about the Constitution uh, and and encourage people to look into things like the Convention of States. And so I think that it really is a gateway into the ideology. It's an organizing tool, basically. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Laura Jeter, what is the shared, air quotes, uh, maybe, maybe not fear of folks in this movement that is, is driving this? Like, what is the world that they're scared of that they feel like they're protecting themselves against? Um, so 
at this point, I think across the conservative movement, you're seeing this idea that America is under threat from essentially what, what they would uh, characterize as Marxism or communism, in which no, no one who's ever studied either of those things would characterize what they're describing, as that they um, essentially believe that the Democrats are in league with the Chinese Communist Party in an attempt to destroy American power and integrate us into a globalist system. And obviously there are a lot of racial overtones in this. There's a lot of anti-Semitism. And if you dig deep enough, a lot of people, I think, that are on the surface level of this don't see it that way. But there's this idea that a lot of what's happening right now, getting God out of the country as they see it, a lot of pushes towards um, gender-affirming care for trans people, the existence of trans people at all, even things like gay marriage are seen as this erosion of America's Christian values as they see it. So there is this idea that America is under siege, both inside and out, by this enemy that would like to destroy their way of life and, and essentially get God out of, uh, of life. And um, they'd like that to not happen. You talked about the undertones of racism, which made me remember a question I forgot to ask you to talk about. Um, the the first targets, right, which the, the bobs that you all had were were all sort of neutral colored. But talk about what happened then with the second round of targets that you were firing yeah. at. So for most of the four days, we fired at basically these beige silhouettes of a person, very, very abstract. And there were two points in the class where the targets got a little bit more concrete. Um, the second to last day, we showed up and there were photorealistic targets of people pointing guns back at us that we were supposed to shoot. And the first day that this happened, or I'm getting, I'm getting a little bit confusing here, the second to last day when this happened the first time, everybody appeared to be white. And then the last day, we had a new set of photorealistic targets. And the fact of the matter is every single one of them appeared to be a person of color. And I think it's important to distinguish between movements like Patriot Academy, who, if you ask them, would say that they're not racist. They would probably tell you about a black friend they have or like a family member that married somebody <laughs> who's not white. They do that whole thing. But then, I mean, if you went to someone like Nick Fuentes and Richard Spencer and asked them about it, they'd be like, yes, we think that the white people are the master race. And I do think it's important to distinguish between those two things. What you have here, though, is, is a sort of baked in racism that I think comes from a, a patriotism that's unquestioning. Um, and yeah, it was very troubling for me to see that. None of this was overt. There were just these these little indications that either somebody had not thought about it or had thought about it and, and was trying to be subtle. And it was, it was very uncomfortable and, and awful. Did they know you were a journalist when you went in? Did it, yes. Did, did they know? Okay. Um, okay. I didn't register as a journalist. I signed up as, as, a, as an attendee. And then when I showed up on the first day, I went up and I said, hi, just so you know, I'm writing this article for the New Republic. I'd love to interview Rick Green. I just want you to be aware. And, um, you know, after talking it over, they were OK with me staying. And I did get to interview Rick Green. Um, I find that showing up helps because, again, these people have been told that everybody to the right of Mitch McConnell is this like evil communist person who hates everything they stand for. And if they see you in person and, you know, you're a, you smile and you're friendly and you also you, you showed up with your own gun, people tend to relax. And that was happily what happened here. So I was able to, to write the article, I think, in a more in-depth way than if they said no.
I mean, I'm a gunner. I like to shoot, too. I don't know that they'd relax, but I'm a black mm -hmm. woman. I don't know that they'd relax if I had showed them up. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Laura, <laughs> from, from where you sit, right, your purchase as a journalist covering this, these issues, do you think that the left, that Democrats are, the, you know, our elected uh, representatives in, in D.C. or even at the state level are taking these folks seriously? Is there a strategy? Are they paying attention? Um, or are we just going to get blindsided again um, as, as a lot of the country was, you know, uh, by January 6th or even the election of someone like Donald Trump to president of this country. Yeah, no, I absolutely I think that Democrats tend to discount this entire movement and anyone associated with it in an awful way. And I agree. We saw that in 2016 with Trump. Uh, January 6th was very surprising to a lot of people. I think the current problem is that I, I do think Trump's star is waning. He's doing some very strange things. This thing where he did his major announcement and then sold NFTs really disillusioned a lot of people. We are moving into a post-Trump era. And I think because so much fear has been focused on the specter of Donald Trump, that as his star wanes, people are going to relax and they should not do that. The energies that Trump coalesced are not going away. The movement that he created is not going away. There's some civil war going on in the party. There's a lot of strife over what that's going to look like. But I don't think this is going away. And I think that we, we do have a tendency to, to laugh at stuff like this because from the perspective of a Democrat or a progressive, this seems laughable. But nobody on the right is laughing about it. They take it very seriously. There's a whole... They have a whole ideology over there that they're pushing. And I do think it's important to, A, understand exactly what that ideology is instead of just making fun of it reflexively. And B, yes, to take it seriously and to realize that these people have concerns that should be addressed, even if the addressing is, guys, this that's not what the Constitution is. We need to... Or, I, yeah, basically the short answer is yes, I think that we do need to take this seriously. And no, I don't think people are taking it seriously enough. Yeah, I mean, I take Rick DeSantis very seriously, right? Like yes. it seems to me there are intentional strategies, right, to in, inside of the Republican Party and, and those to the right even of the Republican Party to um, have maybe a more palatable voice um, speaking in an unpalatable, I might have just made up that word, um, message to the people. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, no, Ron DeSantis is a, a huge threat. I do think that he's a little bit gaff prone, and I wonder whether more camera time is going to see him decline in influence. But there's a lot of other people waiting in the wings. I, I can't mention who, but I mean, you know, if you'd looked in 2014 and asked who the Democratic nominee or the Republican nominee was going to be, it was, it was unclear. At that time, um, it was... Um, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in 24. It's still pretty early, but I, there's going to be a candidate. And I think whoever that candidate is, we'll probably have a pretty serious shot. All right, Laura Gita, we have to leave it there. But I want to thank you so much for joining us and, and for your work. It was an absolute pleasure, Kat. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. 
our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.